Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which talking man Jeremy Hardy knocks down Aunt Sally's with the indemnity of a speeding police driver. In this program, Mr. Hardy explains how to fight fire with fire. Welcome and thank you for being with me at this difficult time. This is the first in a new series of what in many ways is an old program, believed to have its origins in what TV executives call the oral tradition. It's amazing what you have to do to get a series on these days. <laughs> we start with the subject, how to fight fire with fire, and joining me to suck the marrow from the bones of this dialectical stew are Gordon Kennedy and Debbie Isaac. Hello. Hello. Now, Gordon, since we last worked together, you've been working hard on the celebrity alcoholic period of your very career. <laughs> Indeed. Now, you've applied to all the top-flight rest homes for high livers and inflamed kidneys. How successful have you been? Uh, not at all, Jeremy. They all said I'm just Scottish. Ah. <laughs> well, Billy Connolly's Scottish. Yeah, but he's been away from home too long. You see, a haggis supper can absorb any amount of alcohol, but you can't soak up a bottle of whiskey eating moonbeam roulade with Pamela Stevenson. True. <laughs> And I believe you're only with us for a couple of weeks before you go off to appear on Wish You Were Here. Yep. One's presented by Judith Chalmers, who's extremely dried out. Yes, talk about matching luggage. Indeed. <laughs> now, now, Debbie. Debbie, you've been increasingly working in film. Have you started to make money by presenting a preposterous public school version of Britain for the American market? Yes, I've just finished on a sanitised view of the end of the world called Four Horsemen and an Apocalypse. And who plays famine? Jerry Halliwell. Right. <laughs> so what's your next project? Well, I'm about to go into production on a movie called Vinnie Jones's Diary, starring Shane Ritchie as Sweeney Todd, Madonna as Michael Portillo, and Catherine Zeta-Jones as Vinnie, the cockney sparrow from the valleys who wins Portillo's heart among the chaos and slaughter of the last days of the Tory party. <laughs> well, enough about you. How to fight fire with fire. In order to break this lecture up into three sections, I have divided it. Later, I shall be examining what we mean by fighting fire with fire in terms of war and policing. But first, I shall look at the historical importance of what to many is one of the four elements. Earth, wind, pestilence, covetousness, cottontail and peter. <laughs> Imagine a world quite literally without fire. Today, we take many things for granted. Central heating, antibiotics, being put down by bored relatives when we're old and require visiting. <laughs> But there's one discovery that, above all other things, revolutionised the way we burn things. Fire. <laughs> we know from feverish guesswork that early man ate a great deal of salad. These were the days before nice salad could be air freighted from warm countries with starving populations, so salad had to be in season. In the winter, people were reduced to eating a kind of prehistoric coleslaw made from leaves, stones and wood. <laughs> Much like the modern-day equivalent, only without the acrid semen-like dressing. <laughs> but we weren't vegetarians. The first smug, pallid people didn't walk the earth for another 20 or 30 years. <laughs> we were very much carnivores, as we can tell if we compare our jaws with those of carnivorous and herbivorous animals. Debbie, I believe we've got our very own archaeological dig going on right here under the floor of the studio. That's right, Jeremy. There's a lot of building going on as part of a new scheme to involve the private sector by converting the BBC into flats. 
Balfour Beatty were using a floor sander to strip the boards down to the Bakerloo line and convert it into luxury basement loft apartments when they stumbled upon a major archaeological site. Oh. And the Department of Old Stuff, Football and Opera Subsidy has slapped a preservation order on it until a brief token excavation can be carried out. Oh, that's fascinating. So what's been learned about our natural diet and does it once and for all silence all those ashen, spindly killjoys who live on pulses but seemingly without one? <laughs> just uncovered the jaw of a small deer and here we've got a human skull found by an archaeologist in a plastic bag in the toilets at Sandbach Services on the M6 <laughs> and Gordon's holding what is believed to be the skull of a saber-toothed tiger. That's right Debbie and if we compare these three skulls we find that the deer's jaw looks like that of a soppy watery-eyed dolt whereas the tiger is scary like the head in the bag but of course meat can't be cooked without fire so early man either dried animals to make a kind of a briefcase with edible lining <laughs> or simply ate it very rare now the Japanese still eat uncooked fish mind you they would rather die than surrender so they obviously haven't got much of an instinct for survival right, now, Debbie our ancestors were not only hunters but gatherers snacking on large amounts of nuts, seeds and fruit even though there were no long car journeys to be endured in those days yes but remember, we are talking about a world with no fire, so they couldn't roast nuts or make simple preserves. Indeed, they couldn't even boil an egg, even years after they were divorced. <laughs> so we see that they had none of the benefits that fire gives us. So, Debbie, we've talked about early man. What was life like for his female life partner? Not very satisfactory. That's why we call him early man. Uh, but obviously, while he was out slaying, slaying mammoths with a rock on a stick she'd have been in the cave getting ready to go out. So what problems does she face? Well, these finds tell us a great deal, Jeremy. There's a major problem with tools, because without fire, we can't make metal. So we were very much stuck with flint. Now, this is fine for arrowheads and even quite large daggers of the kind I've got here. But take a look at these. They're a perfectly carved pair of flint nail scissors, identical to the modern equivalent. But squeeze, though I might, they just won't budge. Same with these gentlemen's nose hair clippers. Exactly the same problem. What about the nail file? Well, the nail file is better. It's a coarse sandstone, which has a nice rasping surface. Used every day, it keeps the nails quite trim. But if you're lazy like me, you'll let the nails go for a week or so, and that's where the cheating comes in. You bite your nails. Bite them, and then just tidy up the edges with the sandstone. Mm, not the way to keep a man. You can't imagine Jack Jones singing, Hey, little girl, bite your nails and tidy the edges up with sandstone. <laughs> Especially now he's a pensions activist. <laughs> Debbie, many thanks. So without fire, the only way of extracting metal from rocks would have been to leave them in soak for a very long time or pick the shiny bits out of volcanic lava, giving us just enough fine metal strands to make wire and thus enable the invention of electricity. With electricity, we can create artificial warmth, as Davina McCall does. <laughs> can't do everything that the naked flame can do. Let's travel forward in time to the present to look at a modern patio. Now, we have in the studio an exact replica of a Middle England patio, which we borrowed from Newsnight, who've been making yet another desperate attempt to make the programme more visual. Now, our patio comes complete with barbecue set, but in our scenario, there's no fire, so no heat. Gordon, what are you making? Hi, Jeremy. I, I'm preparing all the traditional barbecue fare. Chicken legs, chops, and, of course, sausages. Now, I'm pouring a lot of lighter fluid and paraffin onto the barbecue. 
This is pointless, of course, but it's an instinct so ingrained that I can't help myself. <laughs> but how different would a prehistoric barbecue have been? Well, the guy probably swore less in front of the kids, but apart from that... And how does the meat do on the fireless barbecue? Well, it's absolutely raw and disgusting, as barbecue meat always is. But I've been a bit crafty and created that barbecue appearance just by gluing some bits of scrunched-up black paper to the outside of the meat. <laughs> ah, and here comes the lovely Debbie with the salad. And the special dressing was donated by a fan of the shipping forecast. <laughs> Gordon and Debbie, many thanks. Well, see how our barbecue has got on at the end of the programme. Flames themselves are often used for effect when they are, in fact, quite redundant. We use candlelight to remind us of an earlier, better time when power workers and miners brought down governments. <laughs> we have... We have coal-effect electric fires. Of course, in 50 years, we'll have run out of other fuels and we'll need real coal and we'll be having to kick the tourists out of the pits to get at it. And people will have electricity-effect coal fires with the coal shaped into two bars and an ornamental switch. <laughs> but most of us like the look of a fire, staring into flames evokes feelings of love, comradeship and homicide. <laughs> and imagine Guy Fawkes night with no fire with no fire there would have been no gunpowder plot the only realistic attempt there has ever been to change parliament from within <laughs> in fact the whole of history would have been different without explosives no cannon no bombs and no guns until air rifles came along imagine the vietnam war fought against small woodland birds <laughs> what would modern weaponry consist of what kind of enormous catapults would the pentagon have to construct to bomb iraqi shepherds in the no-fly zone <laughs> Come to that, would Europeans have been able to colonise America if we hadn't been so well tooled up? Or would Native Americans have invaded Europe to expand their market for dream catchers and ethical slippers? <laughs> All of this brings me to the subject of modern warfare, because fighting fire with fire means more than the kind of incompetence we can expect to see when the emergency services are privatised. <laughs> It also serves as a metaphor for a violent reaction. Of course, war is now global, and America is the greatest military machine in history. It is often called the world's policeman, because it beats the crap out of anyone who doesn't do as they're told. <laughs> it also targets the innocent, shoots the unarmed, and puts stickers on children at school fates. <laughs> now, many of you will say it's easy to run down the police, but it's not as easy as it is for them to run us down. <laughs> I digress. We'll be talking more about the police later. My point is that modern war, which is waged for the same strategic and commercial reasons as it always has been, is now dressed up in the garb of international justice and emergency medical procedures. A war is a humanitarian intervention with a few unwanted side effects, cluster bombs causing temporary soreness and some loss of movement in missing limbs. <laughs> Even the missiles are described as surgical, perhaps because of the number of hospitals they hit. I'm sure Tony Blair does see himself as a defender of the free world. He probably thinks he's doing God's work. Hardly anyone wakes up thinking, how can I make the world a worse place today, except perhaps Noel Edmonds. <laughs> Blair is clearly passionately convinced by his version of truth. I imagine that but for an expensive education, he would be walking harmlessly down high streets, clutching plastic bags and shouting the C word at strangers. <laughs> I may be wrong, but I can only go on the evidence. But what of Europe as a whole? I've been weighing up possible reasons for the mooted goal of a European knee-jerk reaction force. <laughs> During last year's presidential election and the Florida debacle, the world was a relatively safe place to live because America was without a real president. 
This must have caused panic among European leaders. How was Europe to have a war? From whom would our orders come? So up pops the idea of the single currency having an armed wing. <laughs> EU enthusiasts said that the Kosovo war hadn't been fought properly because the Pentagon favoured bombing instead of running around in mud like good old Tommies. <laughs> it's true that bombing is rather random. If the programme Ground Force ever transfers to America, it will probably be called Air Force and will involve patios being dropped from 5,000 feet hitting the wrong garden. <laughs> But those people who thought the war would have been more moral if fought with flick knives rather missed the point. The purpose of bombing is to destroy infrastructure and terrorise civilians, and also to offload last season's military hardware and enable restocking. <laughs> if we didn't have a war every so often, we'd have to have a car boot sale to shift all our old gear. <laughs> and anyway, if you support a war, you have to accept the consequences. If you book NATO for the gig, you know they're going to trash the place. <laughs> good saying, well, I think we should intervene, but I don't think we should use cluster bombs or depleted uranium. It's like hiring a debt collector and saying, no, I don't want any rough stuff, okay? <laughs> and besides, what do you mean by this word, we? You're not going to go, are you? It's like watching the football and saying, we beat Germany 5-1. No, you didn't. You watched it on the telly. <laughs> People support a war saying, I for one cannot sit idly by. Yes, you can. You're a newspaper columnist. Sitting idly by is all you ever do. You want thousands of other people to die to make you feel better. So do I, but at least I've got a list. And most of the people on it are journalists. <laughs> you want to see people killed, you don't even know. Just so you can think something's being done. There is a new kind of progressive militarist among the chattering classes who would like to see Britain using its muscle around the world to fight badness. Or perhaps they've always been around. Well, I just think something had to be done. We can't just let the Saracens have Jerusalem. Exactly. I see these crusades as almost a... As a Crusade? As a, exactly, my darling. <laughs> I support King Richard in this one. I mean, we can't just do nothing. But are we doing the right thing? Saladin has to be stopped. But I mean, putting women and children to the sword. Well, what's your alternative? I mean, these women don't have rights under Islam anyway. Or salad anyone. Oh, yes, please. Well, Lovely dressing, darling. What is it? <laughs> anyway, this crusade isn't some old-style imperial adventure. It's about trade routes and the sphere of influence in the Levant. Oh, here we go. Look, these aren't the bad old days of the Roman Empire. This has a moral dimension, a Christian partnership between us and the Holy Roman Empire. Although I do worry about the sword as a weapon. I don't agree with hacking from two feet away. It seems cowardly. I think close stabbing would be more moral. Mm. I think King Richard's all in favour of stabbing. It's the Pope who's dragging his feet. It's the Pope who's calling the shots. Why do you think we're killing Jews and non-Catholic Christians? Well, it's inevitable that mistakes will happen. Exactly. In the split-second sacking of a city, errors of judgement are bound to occur. Anyway, the point is, we can't just sit here. Absolutely, darling. Let's have me in the living room. <laughs> Some believe that if the EU had its own army, we'd fight proper, brave, old-fashioned wars. Well, we might start one like that, but as soon as it got hairy, we'd get America in to flatten the place. <laughs> and Britain doesn't make its own foreign policy decisions. America runs the world. That's why you see McDonald's in every capital city and not Harvester's or Betty's Tea Rooms. <laughs> In fact, America doesn't even run the world. Corporations run the world. That's why Bush's policies are governed by the electricity generators, along with the chair and leather strap manufacturers. <laughs> this man's not capable of running the world. He makes David Beckham look like Chomsky. 
He only stood for election because he saw the word and he thought it said electrocution. He knows he likes them. <laughs> and he's got big arms companies pushing him to militarise space. Now that the old certainties of the Cold War are gone, the West is more geared up for war than ever. We hear much about rogue states. Those frightful cad states who are irresistible to women but treat them shabbily. <laughs> But, of course, militarism is always couched in terms of defence, and the media collude in this. NATO spokesman is Mark Leighty, who once held the title of BBC defence correspondent, rather than BBC dysfunctional correspondent who has warplanes on his gym jams and clearly spent too much of his boyhood alone reading books in which the enemy died with the word agaha appearing in a bubble above their heads. I know correspondents are likely to have an interest in their field, you wouldn't expect Jenny Bond or Nicholas Witchell to say, oh, who cares, they're all inbred parasites anyway. But, <laughs> but when a man we once accused of being a NATO mouthpiece gets a job as NATO mouthpiece, I think we're entitled to ask for our money back. <laughs> but how much is war a boy's thing? Many people see the failure to resolve conflict as particularly male. Debbie, what evidence have we found in our archaeological dig to back this up? Well, it does seem that it was the men who were most concerned with territory. The rocks all have these yellow markings, showing a random spattering over quite a large area. Women, as we know, are naturally more sociable, so we can see from the acid erosion that's caused this large gully that perhaps 15 or 20 will go to the toilet together at the same time. Mm. <laughs> a bit damp, that gully. Yeah, sorry about that. On Emma. <coughs> Of course, this was also a time when language was much more rudimentary, so presumably less ability to communicate might have meant more aggression. And even today it's said that men are not as good at women at, um... um you know, kind of, um... Uh, you know, sort of... Yeah, kind of... Sorry, Jeremy, you're putting, not expressing um, yourself very well. Oh, oh, nothing. There must be something. Let's leave it, OK? God! <laughs> What was I talking about? You can't concentrate on more than one thing at a time, can you? What? <laughs> Militarism. Oh, yeah. Right. <clears throat> I have to say, I'm a bit jaded about the army because I grew up in the Aldershot area and there was a time when we were thinking of calling in the IRA as a peacekeeping force. <laughs> I've become rather nervous about the army's involvement in the foot and mouth crisis. There's not much point defeating the disease if we end up with depleted uranium all over the bloody Lake District. <laughs> And I dread to think what military overreactions will come to light as the footpaths are reopened, especially given the involvement of General Sir Mike Jackson, who is a veteran of Bloody Sunday. Ramblers are, for the most part, peaceful and unarmed, so God knows how many of them have been shot. <laughs> Apparently, the army's job was consultative, advising the slaughtermen on what to do. I should have thought, if your job description is slaughterman, <laughs> you can't really claim you didn't know what you were letting yourself in for. The profession's title pretty much encompasses all that's required. You whack stuff and you don't even have to make it look like an accident. <laughs> Clearly, the government is pursuing a policy of fighting the animal equivalent of blisters and chapped lips with an enormous amount of fire. But I'm surprised the police haven't been brought in. For an unarmed force, they do seem to do an enormous amount of shooting. <laughs> Not many people without guns are able to do this. I should qualify this conundrum by employing a word that has crept into the vocabulary of our discussions about placing. That word is routinely, as in not routinely armed. What we mean by not routinely armed is, of course, armed. <laughs> it certainly sounds nicer, and I suggest the phrase be used more widely. Security van drivers and bank tellers would feel a sight more secure if they knew the man pointing a shotgun at them was a not routinely armed robber. 
you think about it, armed robbers are not armed as a matter of course. Most of the time they go about their ordinary business telling people the time and chatting to shopkeepers. They only carry firearms if an emergency such as an armed robbery is taking place. <laughs> and who could feel threatened by missiles, which are not routinely armed with warheads? Missiles have a job to do, and underneath that pointy, explosive exterior, they're just ordinary projectiles like any other. <laughs> now, you might say that in an increasingly armed society, police need to fight fire with fire. But if the fire services acted on an anonymous tip-off that someone might have a box of matches, then showed up at the wrong address and drowned someone else, they'd be prosecuted. <laughs> Uh, Jeremy, I must stop you there. Um, we've had a fact from the Police Federation demanding a right to reply. I'll go on then, read it out. Dear sir, and I mean sir in a menacing rather than respectful way. <laughs> Once again, the politically correct lobby seeks to undermine the confidence in the police service as a whole. Perhaps your listeners would like to know that being shot by the police is still one of the safest ways of being killed. <laughs> Look at the statistics. People shot by us have dropped very rapidly. One in the head normally does it. <laughs> and the number is very small, especially as a proportion of the total number of people we kill. All deaths are immediately and thoroughly rubber-stamped by the Police Complaints Authority. And the families get to have a weep and a moan at the inquest. Yes, mistakes have been made in the past, and we in the Police Federation are proud of our traditions. Okay, well, this seems a good time to look at the case of Harry Stanley, who was shot in the head by police while walking home in Hackney in September 1999. He'd stopped off at a pub and ordered an orange juice. He had a Scottish accent and was carrying a two-foot-long table leg in a plastic bag. When he left, someone phoned the police and said a man with an Irish accent had left carrying what looked like a sawn-off shotgun. Some of the press have suggested the mistaken belief that Harry was Irish justifies the shooting, ignoring the fact that being Irish is not actually proof of anything. <laughs> it certainly wouldn't shed any light on whether a plastic bag might have a shotgun in it. Paramilitary organisations don't really use cockney shooters and are apt to be furtive about their hardware anyway. Otherwise, Cyril Ramaphosa and Marty Artisari wouldn't need to be driven blindfold round the Irish countryside inspecting arms dumps. They could just pop in and out of pubs looking in people's bags to check whether their guns have been fired. <laughs> in any event, the police found Harry Stanley walking along, pulled up, got out, followed him for a few yards, shouted, stop, armed police. Harry didn't respond, they shouted again, he turned and they shot him. And all because someone rang from a pub. This is clearly a matter of inadequate training. We, the public, need to be re-skilled in how to react to people shouting at us if we don't want to be shot. <laughs> you might say that everybody makes mistakes. Well, we've come to accept that police officers fail to investigate crimes, frame people and batter demonstrators, but when they kill us, I think we're entitled to ask what we're paying them for. <laughs> Whenever police malpractice is exposed, we hear the complaint that officers' morale is so hurt they can no longer do their jobs properly. Now we hear the police are frightened to harass black people and it's all Lord Macpherson's fault. It would be too much to hope that police officers would react to the Lawrence inquiry with an appropriate fear, like, say, being afraid to cock up murder investigations. But no! <laughs> Unsurprisingly, random stop and search is a not very effective way of investigating crime. It might work as a deterrent if done to an extreme degree, but I think I'd rather be mugged occasionally than shaken down by the police every five minutes. Even I don't want to know what's in some of my pockets. <laughs> I've been waiting for some of those hankies to compost down. <laughs> to prove their impartiality, however, the police are at pains to stress that burglars tend to be white men. Well, if that's the case, why doesn't the following happen?
Well, hello. Is, is something wrong? Is this your house, sir? Yes. Have you got a receipt for it? Uh, <laughs> no. No I've... proof that it is your house. Well, there's the deeds. They're with the solicitor. I don't think we need to involve a solicitor unless you've got some political agenda. No, I, I just... You do know your curtains are out of date, do you, sir? Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I've been meaning to get new ones. Sorry. Can you tell us what's in your shed? What? Well, <clears throat> if it is your house, you'll be able to tell us what's in your shed. Um, lawnmower, compost, garden stuff. You normally keep garden stuff in your shed, sir? Yeah. Do you mind if my colleague takes a look? All right, I'll need to unlock it. He's reaching for something. CSM! Oh, bloody hell! <laughs> I told you the volatile will have to put him face down on the ground and sit in him Ooh. for his own safety. Ooh. He's like a man possessed with some kind of superhuman Ooh. strength. Oh, that's very good. You should write that down. Yes, I bet I had. Coroners are obsessed with notebooks. <laughs> Point is, whatever powers the police have, they misuse. Stun guns aren't intended to stop the police shooting people, but to enable them to stun the people they don't shoot. Plastic bullets have killed people. They're not little darts with suckers on propelled by rubber bands. <laughs> if there were a law to deal with Anthony Worrell Thompson, the police would use it against Ainsley Harriet. <laughs> Assuming he hadn't already been duped into doing one of their soppy tokenistic recruitment ads. And when the Ring of Steel was brought in ostensibly to protect the City of London against the IRA, most of the drivers stopped by the police were Afro-Caribbean. Because the police are so keen for black people to join them in the back of vans. <laughs> so what's happening now that the IRA is on ceasefire? Well, obviously the government needed to overhaul the 1974 Prevention of Terrorism Act, also known as the PTA, or Parent Teachers Association. <laughs> so what the government did was to bring in a new terrorism act that was even more repressive than the old one. Governments are always happiest when their subjects walk in fear. If there were nothing left to fear, the government would launch an initiative to tackle cannibalism, goblins or laudanum parties. <laughs> create the impression that something must be done. Emergency legislation is all exciting, it's all sirens and bells. It wasn't that there was a legal loophole before 1974 whereby you could put a bomb in a pub and they couldn't touch you for it. <laughs> but this new law does not appear to be intended simply to wind the public up. The government is genuine about wanting to curtail freedom. It's extremely rattled by direct action. Terrorism has now been redefined to include serious damage to property and action designed seriously to interfere with an electronic system. The latter clause was introduced by Lord Bach in response to the love bug. Whether he meant the overhyped computer virus or Herbie the anarchist Volkswagen... <laughs> You're also a terrorist if you pull up GM crops. Crop circles are caused by aliens who are dealt with under immigration law. <laughs> You're also a terrorist if you damage a hawk jet due for export to a tyrant. But if you get drunk on your stag night, nick one and wrap it round a bus stop, you'll be dealt with the laws covering horseplay. <laughs> In any event, many more of you are now terrorists than before. Think of yourselves as freedom fighters, but say you're just mindless vandals if you want to get off with a fine. <laughs> We're nearly out of time, so to sum up on a lighter note, in order to fight fire with fire, you must have an agenda far removed from any interest in peace or justice, lie about your motives, and use the slightest excuse for violence and oppression. Sorry to interrupt again, Jeremy, but we've had another fax from the Police Federation. <sighs> P.S. I know you all think we fitted up Barry George, but we needed someone unhealthily fixated with militaria, who has a violent history and a dysfunctional attitude to women. Jim Davidson was busy, so we went for Monkey Boy. <laughs> Don't worry, the real killer will turn up one day, and when he does, we'll be looking for him. <laughs> hey, it all 
Oh, Debbie, any more finds in our dig? Yes, we found an unexploded bomb. What kind of cowardly fiend would bomb a radio station? Hang on, it seems to have some sort of inscription. Let's see. It says, this one's for you, Slobberdun, from all the boys at NATO. me, <laughs> that's miles off target. No, it's not that far. Chinese embassy's just over the road. <laughs> Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred Gordon Kennedy and Debbie Isaac. The producer was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC. New Show Flat is now open to visitors.